What do you do with a dog that chases or hunts critters or other things in general? How do you work with a dog with predatory behavior or predation? A prevailing mindset is to stop those behaviors using an aversive or punishing the behavior. I'm joined by one of the experts on this topic, Simone Mueller, and we discuss many alternative options to punishment using positive reinforcement-based strategies to work with what is often considered a difficult type of behavior to deal with. And if you are working with aggression cases or plan on taking aggression cases as a trainer, or maybe you're even struggling with your own dog, we have a variety of educational opportunities for you, including the upcoming Aggression in Dogs Conference happening from September 30th through October 2nd, 2022 in Providence, Rhode Island with both in-person and online options. You can also learn more about the Aggression in Dogs Master Course, which is the most comprehensive course available anywhere in the world for learning how to work with and help dogs with aggression issues by going to aggressivedog.com. And stay tuned for a new subscription-based series where I'll be walking you through how to work with a variety of aggression issues with applicable techniques and plans to help dogs in aggression cases. And a very special thanks to John LaSala for editing the podcast this season and bringing the production to a whole next level. Hey everyone, I'm really excited for this episode. I've got the amazing Simone Mueller, who is an expert in predation substitute training. I've been wanting to get this topic on the podcast for a while, so I'm super excited because I've got the foremost expert on this. Uh, Simone's a certified dog trainer and dog behavior consultant from ATN.ag, which is from Germany. She specializes in force-free anti-predation training and is the author of two books, of the Predation Substitute Training Series, Hunting Together and Rocket Recall. Simone is proud to be an associate trainer at the Scotland-based Lothlorien Dog Training Club, AT-LDTC, and a member of both the PPG, Pet Professional Guild, and the Pet Dog Trainers of Europe, PDT. You can follow Simone's work on Facebook and Instagram, hashtag Predation Substitute Training, and you can learn more by going to PredationSubstitutetraining.com. So welcome, Simone. I'm, I'm really excited about jumping into this topic. Hi, Mike. Thank you very much for having me. I'm so glad to be here. Yes. And for those of you who don't know, uh, Simone will also be speaking at the Aggression in Dogs Conference, which I'm excited about. Uh, I know that a lot of the attendees have been wanting to learn about this topic for a while. And so let's jump right in here. I think what's important for us to do is define what predation is and also what the predatory motor pattern is. So it might be a fancy term for some, but I think uh, it's important to start with what is that? What is predation? What is the predatory motor pattern? Why does it matter so much for us as dog trainers and pet owners? Well, the predatory motor pattern is something that is so important for our dogs and something that mm, many dog owners don't know much about. So a lot of dog owners have come to me and they tell me, well, I have the problem that my dog chases off, he chases wildlife and um, stuff like that. But when you have a look at what predation actually is and where it starts, then there is much more than just the chase. Predation normally starts with scanning the environment with orientating in the environment and the dog wants to make sure is there something to hunt. Some dogs do it with their noses down on the ground sniffing, some dogs have their noses high in the air, air scenting and some just stand and look around. And then when they find something that they can hunt then they go into a, a freeze stalk and then they try to creep to 
bridge the gap between themselves and the wild animal to get as close as possible. And the moment they think, well, now I'm close enough to be successful with my hunt, this is the moment when they chase off. And you see, this is the moment when the distracted dog owner on their cell phone finally realizes, oh my gosh, we're in trouble, my dog is hunting. But there has been going on so much before that that we didn't even realize and where we still had some time to do something about this. And then the predatory motor pattern goes on. Um, it's uh, when the chase is uh, successful and the dog gets a hold of this animal and he gets a grab bite, then he will kill the animal by shaking or by ripping the animal apart. And um, then they start to dissect the animal and to eat the animal. And then the predatory motor pattern has come to an end. And so it's reasonable to say that all dogs have some part of the predatory motor pattern or motor sequence in them. And we as humans have truncated or exaggerated some aspects of that predatory motor sequence, depending on the breed. And it's also important, I think, to note that, um, you know, no, not all dogs are going to go to dissecting and consuming, <laughs> you know, other animal size. So there's probably some listeners like, oh my gosh, what do I do if my dog starts chasing somebody or another animal? But um, so can you talk more about that in, in regards to certain aspects of that motor pattern in certain breeds or where we might maybe need to be more concerned. Yeah, right. So um, as you said before, the original motor pattern is something that wolves still show and um, wild canines. And some of our dogs still show it to original breeds, for example, or Nordic dogs, they go through the whole motor pattern. But the, the working breeds that we have bred for our purposes, for example, sheep herding or even gun dogs, they don't show the whole modal pattern anymore. Some parts were completely bred out because we don't want a dog working with sheep and grabbing and killing sheep. And even in gun dogs, um, the dissection and the, the eating has been bred out because this is what the hunter wants to do. So basically, they should do something before the chase comes or after the chase, but they should not eat the wild animal. So some have been highlighted. For example, in border collies, the eye, when they stalk the sheep, this has been highlighted massively. The chase as well, it's a, it's a kind of chase that they show. Or, for example, in um, in spaniels, the the first, the very first part of um, the predatory motor pattern, the orientation in the environment, has been highlighted massively, because they are to run around <laughs> like maniacs into the bushes, flushing up birds and stuff like that. We want to have this part of the predatory motor pattern, so it has been enhanced massively, and this is where the problem comes, because if we have, a, for example, a wolf, when they only start the motor pattern when they are sure that they can be successful because they don't have a bowl of food every day at their disposal. They need to be successful with hunting. Whereas our dogs, they get fed and they have a, yeah, a nice home where they get all the energy from that they need. And um, they get a reinforcement from these parts that they have been highlighted. So this is very hard to interrupt because they have been highlighted massively. So it, I think it's an important distinction to, to recognize it. It's somewhat normal behavior, much like when a dog is guarding their food ball, right? And they're what we would classically define as resource guarding. And that particular behavior is actually normal for, for most animals, including dogs. And we as humans deem it abnormal because it doesn't fit into our human lifestyles. And 
sort of predatory behavior can be looked at in this in, in a similar light in that much of the behavior is normal uh, especially from if you're looking from an ethological lens it's it's what we've you know that, that that's the survival mechanism of that you know species and so um do you agree there in terms of the distinction of of helping clients understand you know what's you know, I don't know what's the word, looking to live with or accept as part of that behavior repertoire. Yeah, sure. Um, this totally makes sense because the dog has to eat. So it's in their genes. It cannot be just uh, switched off. And it's something that we have to deal with. And uh, we can make our lives miserable and just uh, see it as a, a problem behavior all the time that we need to fight against. Or we can shift our perspective a little bit and see it as something that our dogs love and that they need to do and that they enjoy so much and uh, they get so much um, satisfaction from. And uh, yeah, if we can have ourselves be a part of this, then it can be enriching too. And it's you, you mentioned a good point there. It's just it, oftentimes so highly reinforcing and also a big part of that dog's needs and that's why it can be hard for us to interrupt, right? And, and to prevent that from happening. So let's kind of jump into that topic next and, you know, kind of describe why is it so important for dogs to have that behavior in their repertoire? Yeah, it's, um, it's, as I said before, it's in their genes. So it won't just go away. Sometimes people come and they say, yeah, I thought when he grows up, he will leave it be. And it's not the case. Or sometimes, um, owners get the recommendation to get their dog neutered and this will get rid of the, the hunting and it just doesn't make sense. So it won't just go away and it is completed or it is, um, even made stronger through learning experience. So every dog has a kind of span um, of uh, predatory behavior that they will grow into. And uh, within this span, they have a, a minimum or a maximum. And this is the span that is um, either enhanced by learning experience or reduced if, if there is nothing uh, in the environment that they had in their first, let's say, one, two and a half years of life. So... You mentioned something also in a lot of the talks I've seen you do is in terms of the dog's hobby and understanding what your dog's hobby is. Can you explain more about that and why it's important for the work you do? <laughs> yeah, I use the word um, or the saying it's the, the dog's hobby because um, when you look at the different breeds that we just talked about, each of them was bred to do a different type of work or um, yeah, a different part of this predatory behavior. And uh, this is what we need to know about our dogs. So we need to know what their favorite thing is, their favorite hobby that they love to do, because this is what we work with when we talk about anti-predation trainings, force-free anti-predation trainings. These are the parts that we use to either give them a let out for all this energy that they have and or to play games with them. So some dogs love to stalk, for example, um, guardian dogs love to stalk or greyhounds love to stalk and to chase. So these are the hobbies. A, lab a Labrador will um, enjoy to carry things in their mouth. So we do it with them. A Spaniel might enjoy running around, flushing up birds. <laughs> um, so these are the things that we give them as a kind of um, outlet for their predatory energy. Yeah, I think it's, and it's definitely a topic that I've uh, talked to previous guests in the past. You know, Kim Brophy has talked about, again, meeting breed-specific needs and understanding the ethological side of behavior. Um, I did want to 
since I'm uh, since I just mentioned Kim's name, I did want to talk about you know we sometimes hear the term predatory aggression in our in the constructs and labels that we might hear in the dog training world, um, and there's some debate about that. And my my view is that predatory aggression is somewhat of a misnomer if you're looking and you're using you're going back to the original term of predation because if you look at predation it's used to decrease distance from the animal whereas aggression is used to increase distance from the animal or the function of it is is there so what is your distinction do you use that term predatory aggression or you kind of distinctly define the difference between aggression and predation or predatory behavior yeah, it's exactly as you said. Um, predation is just the opposite of aggression. It's a decreasing distance to an animal or something that the dog wants to hunt. I think people only use the word aggression here because the outcome that they see is violent. And this is why they label it aggression. But if you look at uh, learning theory and um, what the intention and the emotions are behind the behavior, it's just the opposite than from aggression. And I think that's important for us as consultants to really assess what that underlying emotion is through behavior history. We obviously don't want to replicate seeing that behavior. We don't need to see a dog trying to kill something else or chase down another animal or person. But I do think it's important we you know, distinguish what's happening from an emotional standpoint because the behavior can look very similar. Let's say we use the example of a, a dog that's been teased by children going by the house. And then so the dog will let's see, sees somebody, a child riding by on the bike. So they leave their property to chase after the child to bite that child on the leg to maybe make that child go away. So the goal is actually increasing distance from the threat or eliminating the threat, even though the dog is at that moment decreasing distance. But the goal, and it's important to assess what the function is, do they want that child to go away. And so sometimes it's misapplied that it's, you know, predation, like the dog's trying to eat the child, which is <laughs> incredibly rare. So I do think that the underlying emotion or motivation really needs to be assessed carefully in these cases. Would you agree? I totally agree. And uh, thankfully, real cases of um, predatory drift, this is what it's called when a dog, for example, mistakes a child or um, a smaller dog as prey, um, are very, very rare. Um, normally, it's just that uh, something happens that uh, triggers the dog to chase, but the motivation is, uh, yeah, thankfully, not to, to kill and uh, eat <laughs> here. Because what we're seeing there is parts of the predatory motor sequence or motor pattern in what our observations, so the chase behavior, we can argue that could be part of different motivation, but it's also part of that predatory motor pattern, right? And once they do the chase and then the grab, and then, you know, maybe they take down the victim, hopefully they don't do anything further than that. But um, so it can be, it can be confusing concept, I think, sometimes when we're looking at again, assessing the motivation when we're seeing similar observable behaviors on the outside. So so let's jump into topics or like the next topic, which is how to actually work with this. Because that's, I'm sure, the question going through a lot of the listeners' minds like, okay, so this is great. We understand what predation is and predatory behavior, but what do we do when a dog is chasing and killing other animals or when we've got to solve this issue, but we don't want to use aversives? Or maybe let's actually talk about that first. What are the problems that you see when using aversives for this particular behavior? And what, what kind of led you to pursue more force-free options for this? 
Well, the, the first and foremost reason why <laughs> is that uh, it's banned in Germany to use aversives, uh, even with predatory behavior. So I just never got the chance. <laughs> um, but um, what we know is that um, when we deal with predation, there are so many hormones in the body, for example, adrenaline and dopamine. And this massively reduces the dog's perception of pain. And this totally makes sense. For example, think of a dog who, uh, or a, a wild canine that chases down a stag or a wild boar. If they were feeling pain just the normal way, they wouldn't do it. They wouldn't go for it because um, we know from gun dogs that are massively wounded and they still go on with their job because they don't feel the pain anymore. And this is a problem here because once to use aversives to interrupt predatory behavior, you need to heavily punish this behavior, heavily, heavily punish it. And, uh, and the dog can even learn to push through the punishment in order to get their dopamine rush, to get their endorphins in the end. And so you are spiraling the punishment up, up, up. So this is another reason why it's not a very good idea to use it here. And so we might uh, sometimes just suppress the behavior for a moment, but then because of the reinforcing properties of this particular behavior, it's often not going to stick. In other words, that those punishers are not going to, in the true sense of the meaning of punishment, reduce the frequency of the behavior because it's the reinforcement value trumps the punishment, it sounds like. Yeah, right. And uh, then the behavior shows up uh, somewhere else. Let's say, for example, a lot of dogs get uh, um, issues with their skin or with their stomach. They get uh, problems with um, staying home alone or um, impulse control. So we, when we suppress one behavior, it shows up in different ways. And sometimes people don't even make the connection. Um, between uh, a dog who cannot stay alone at home or rips apart the couch as soon as nobody watches and uh, one that, uh, yeah, and the dog not being able to to release that predatory energy when they are out. It's the, yes, and it's such an important point to make because it's the, it's tragic when you think about it too, when we as humans have asked for certain parts of that predatory motor sequence to be exaggerated. And then we ask them not to do that anymore. So we take that border collie and then we bring them home and we say, oh no, no, you can't do that. That thing that we've, as humans have asked you many generations to do, we've bred into you. Now you can't do it. So you have no way of satisfying that need. Just how much you can see those, those, you know, the physiological signs of not meeting a dog's innate needs start to surface in our behavior cases. So very important distinction. I, I'm, I'm really glad you brought that up. So, all right. So let's now jump into the actual the the training that happens and where do you start with that so you, you mentioned it's kind of predation substitute training is the name for what you're doing but where do you start when you have a client reach out to you and my dog is maybe chasing and has killed a cat or something that's very emotionally distressing for many of our clients and they're they're desperate and trying to stop this or maybe they've even been pulled down to the ground by their dog they're on a walk the dog sees something they they lunge towards it to try to chase after it. So what are your first steps in, with your clients? Yes, right. So um, fortunately, I don't have so many clients who come in and tell me that their dog already killed 
another animal because this makes the prognosis very uh, not so very promising. Uh, they can still reach success to a certain point, but it's not as good as um, when we got the behavior before that. What I normally ask is their history. What have they already tried in their training? And most people come to me and tell me that they have been to other trainers before. And these people or these trainers, sorry, <laughs> told them, um, yeah, you have to be more um, exciting than the environment. You have to be um, the focus for your dog and uh, the most important part in your dog's life. And I always think, yeah, how can you do that? It's so yeah unfair to tell people they need to be more exciting than the environment when we have dogs that are highly aroused outside because they have been bred to chase, for example, everything that moves. And people are really frustrated. This is a feeling that I get a lot that the um, connection with their dog is... Uh, there is so much frustration going on and um, I try to build them up a little bit and uh, shift to some parts that they can do immediately. For example, um, we need to look at management. This is the first thing um, that is really important for predation substitute training that we manage the dog in a way that the dog is not successful with hunting anymore. And now you can say, okay, put the dog on a leash, then he will not go hunting anymore. But this is not the best thing to do. Of course, you need a leash on your dog, but there are so many other things that you can do in order to keep your dog from hunting. For example, you can teach your dog to stay on a path. You can um, teach your dog focus games to focus on you in order to not give them the opportunity to hunt. For example, you can um, lower arousal when you're out by building islands that the dog knows about. Here are islands of calmness that we... Um, have predictability here to some extent. The dog knows what is to expect on their walks. And then the second part that we need to look at are tools that we can give to people in the moment that uh, when wildlife shows up. So we are going to teach the dog calmness around wildlife, basically. For example, um, if you have a look at the predatory motor pattern again, there are some parts that are safe to perform. For example, standing and stalking and other parts that are unsafe that we cannot allow the dog to do. So instead of having our dog chase, we can let them stalk. Um, we can teach them to stand and stalk. The deal here is you can stand and stalk as long as you want to, but you cannot chase. And most of the dogs accept that pretty well, because as we said before, the predatory motor pattern is intrinsically motivating for the dog. So um, even the, 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 the first parts, um, like scanning, like creeping, like stalking, they feel so good and the dogs want to perform it. And then... The third part of predation substitute training is playing games to give the dogs an outlet for the parts that are not so safe. For example, ripping apart things, um, chasing, eating <laughs> and um, grabbing, for example. And then, of course, we need a fourth part, which is an interrupter, because we need to stop predatory behavior when it happens. And these are the four parts that we work on. And then we put them together like a kind of puzzle. So it's not one thing that you do it's rather a kind of yeah a kind of lifestyle when you're out with your dog you um yeah you incorporate all these four parts in your training all right we're going to take a short break to hear a word from our sponsors then we'll be right back to learn more about working with predatory behavior hey friends it's me again and i hope you are enjoying this episode 
You may have figured out that something I deeply care about is helping dogs with aggression issues live less stressful, less confined, more enriched, and overall happy lives with their guardians. Aggression is so often misunderstood, and we can change that through continued education, like we receive from so many of the wonderful guests on this podcast. In addition to the podcast, I have two other opportunities for anyone looking to learn more about helping dogs with aggression issues, which include the Aggression in Dogs Master Course and the Aggression in Dogs Conference. If you want to learn more about the most comprehensive course on aggression taught anywhere in the world, head on over to aggressivedog.com and click on the Dog Pros tab and then the Master Course. The course gives you access to 23 modules on everything from assessment to safety to medical issues to the behavior change plans we often use in a number of different cases, including lessons taught by Dr. Chris Pockel, Kim Brophy, and Jessica Dolce. You also receive access to a private Facebook group with over a thousand of your fellow colleagues and dog pros all working with aggression cases. After you finish the course, you also gain access to private live group mentor sessions with me where we practice working through a variety of cases together. And if you need CEUs, we've got you covered. We are approved for just about every major training and behavior credential out there. This is truly the flagship course offered on aggression in dogs and is perfect for pet pros that want to set themselves apart and take their knowledge and expertise to the next level, or even for pet owners who are seeking information to help their own dog. And don't forget to join me for the third annual Aggression in Dogs conference, either in person or online from Providence, Rhode Island on September 30th through October 2nd, 2022. This year's lineup includes many of the amazing guests you might have heard on the podcast, including Suzanne Clothier, Jen Tryock, Simone Mueller, Dr. Amber Batson, Kim Brophy, Karish Mawar, Laura Monaco-Torelli, Dr. Simone Gabois, and many more. Head on over to AggressiveDog.com and click on the Conference tab to learn more about the exciting agenda on everything from advanced concepts and leash reactivity to using positive reinforcement to work with predatory behavior. And I wanted to take a moment to thank one of our sponsors for the conference. As a family of world-class trainers, Fenzy Dog Sports Academy provides expert and accessible instruction for competitive dog sports using the most progressive training methods and positive reinforcement techniques. Through their online platform, students are able to access professional dog training no matter your location or pup's skill level. FDSA believes the bond between dog and human is a proud and life-changing partnership, and they'll work with you to develop a respectful and kind relationship with your furry best friend. Check out FDSA at FenzyDogSportsAcademy.com. All right, we're back here with the incredible Simone Mueller, where we've been learning about working with predatory behavior in dogs. So I, I love some of the terminology you're using here. And it's one thing I think I heard it correctly. It's islands of calmness. Yes. So like, I, I don't think I've heard that anywhere. And that's such a great description because that's really what we want in a lot of situations where we have limited options on what we can do in that environment. And I kind of employ the same technique or tactic with dogs that are very fearful in certain locations. You create a location that has a very rich history of reinforcement. So a mat or a raised bed, whatever you can bring with you in the, in the outdoor environments. And you create that as a safe zone. So it's the dog learns that you've got their back. Nobody's going to mess with you when you're on this safe zone or this mat. And I'm going to also make sure you learn that it's a place of calm and it's a place of safety. And it's a, again, that rich history of reinforcement happens on this mat. And so then I bring it out to the other environments where maybe the dog has a very difficult time, even if there's plenty of distance, so like 500 yards or meters from something in the environment 
would generally give them trouble, it can often be like that safety net, sort of almost like putting on a superhero cape where they feel, okay, I can do this because I'm on my mat and my owner's got my back. And so in, in some ways it's similar, but I know it's different in the sense of the underlying uh, motivation that's happening in these two cases. But yeah, so this this island of calmness, I love that aspect. And so <laughs> so I'm, I'm assuming you do a lot of foundational work with that you know, ahead of time. Can you describe what that looks like a little bit more? Yes. <laughs> the island of calmness is just one example. And uh, I like the, the superhero cave thing that you just <laughs> said. I will keep that in mind. Um, it's about predictability. Predictability creates calmness. And uh, we need this with dogs that are highly aroused outside. So um, I tell people, well, you when you go on your walks, you uh, determine a walk and then you determine an island of calmness, for example, a bench where you sit down and you do some tea touches or you do some calmness scavenging games or something like that. And then you go on and then comes an island of action where the dog can blow off steam and he can have some ball games even. That's okay. And then the next one should be an island of calmness again. And the last island of calmness is always before you reach the car. It's like a like a word, workout in the gym. You don't go full impact and then you suddenly stop, you do a calm down again. And this is really important for our dogs too, before they come home and they are left alone for a couple of hours that you do a calm down with them. And uh, then what I also tell people to do when their dog is highly aroused outside and very excited is that they don't do circular walks. They go away out and the same way back again because on the way out the dog can smell all the new things in the environment which is really stimulating and then on the way back it's a little bit boring because they have checked out all the things and they are able to 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 focus on you or um, to do something together with you or just relax because the the stimulating things are not that much anymore. And so you call it this calm down period of where you want to sort of ratchet down the arousal. Is there a reason for that beyond when you're getting back to the house? So you also mentioned, is that ratchet down period happening when they get home as well, where they start to continue to do calming exercises or something like that? Or is it just on their journey back home from the walk? Oh, you can do both. It depends on your dog. Some dogs uh, think it's enough when you do some scavenging around the car, so scatter some treats. But other dogs who are still quite excited when they come home and you don't want them to rip apart the couch or the carpet, then you give them something to to do here, to shred or to lick or to chew. Because when we talked about hormones, I said that dopamine is the, the, the hormone that uh, is released during the first part of the predatory motor pattern and is peaking during the chase. And then the latter part of the motor pattern where we have the grab, the hold, and finally dissecting and eating, then oxytocin and endorphins are released into the body and the dog calms down again. Uh, this is a crucial part because um, in Germany we have a lot of dog owners who take their dog on a on a meadow and they throw ball, throw ball, throw ball for about 20 minutes and then they think, okay, now the dog is tired and they go home and they go off to work and then they come home and uh, the carpet is totally destroyed. This happens because the dog is still pumped full of dopamine. And uh, it's like doing drugs. The dog is so excited and they need to finish the motor pattern. They need this um, to release these calmness hormones into their body. So they need something to choose. They, they need to dissect something. And uh, in order to 
to calm them down, you need to give them this outlet because they, yeah, gives them some, something to shred. Yes, that makes so much sense because there's a lot of research and, and uh, I should say discussion about what the dog experiences before they actually engage in the behavior, the target behavior, right? So the anticipation, so to speak, of engaging in that particular activity is actually more powerful to the animal than actually the behavior or activity itself. And so it makes total sense what you're saying that that it's important to make sure we are providing the sort of finish line of what they're looking for, or else we're risking lots of other problem behaviors surfacing, right? So displacement behaviors, frustration, things like that. Would that be an accurate statement? Totally. Yes, exactly. Very, very interesting. So so we've looked at management. We've looked at you know establishing these islands of calmness in those situations in those environments, but also providing exercise and enrichment in those moments, but also bringing back to the island of calmness. Uh, <laughs> and then you get into some of the games, the replacement games or activities we can do. Tell me more about that and and what you typically would recommend. And let's use a, let's I, I like to use hypothetical cases. So let's say we have a border collie that is um, you're out on a path and it's. Its MO is to go after bikes and joggers going by. So anything with movement, as Border Collie might uh, go after. And um, let's say there's a little bit of a bite history. Maybe the dog has gotten off leash and has nipped at a jogger's leg or something. And so we want to replace that, considering that it is a Border Collie, and we want to choose appropriate games for that case. What would you suggest there? Well, for a Border Collie, I normally suggest doing some stalking activities to teach the dog to stalk on cue. Um, you can either do this with um, a treat or a toy and you give your dog the announcement or the info that they are about to stalk. And then you pull out a treat and you move it in front of the dog's eyes. And the dog has to learn that um, instead of chasing it literally with their feet, they can stand all four on the ground and only chase this treat with their eyes. And uh, this is something that a lot of dogs enjoy, but especially breeds that were bred to follow movements with their eyes. Mm, I like that. I like that. And it seems something that'd be fairly straightforward for most pet owners to incorporate into their strategies. So let's add some other examples, maybe some other different breeds. Let's <laughs> come up with one where you may not be able to use that particular technique. Maybe we want to incorporate some sort of toys with some dogs. Yeah, you can use, um, I mean, in, in anti-predation training, you can use almost anything. You can use flirt poles, you can use balls. There is nothing bad about arousal. I know that a lot of people are afraid of arousal, but I think it's something that the dog wants and needs. And even I want some excitement in my life from time to time. If everything was just boring and calm, yeah, it wouldn't be a good life. So um, the important stuff is just that um, you calm your dog down afterwards. Think of the gym and think of the cool down activity in the end. And this should always be something that has to do with um, eating, licking, scavenging food. But basically, if you have a look at gun dog training, there are so many great activities that hunters use to train their dogs. And we just use them with a little tweak to teach our dogs not to hunt. Yeah, the tools are pretty much the same. For example, we can have fake squirrels on a, on a rubber band that um, the dog can chase. And then we, we practice our stop instead of the chase <laughs> and stuff like that. So we're very much replacing the dog's uh, the 
problem behavior with with appropriate activities while also satisfying that innate need and those needs of that animal. And and I love that you mentioned, you know, arousal is not a four-letter word. It gets a lot of, you know, <laughs> flack in the dog training community, but uh, we actually like arousal when we're working with dogs in many cases because it helps us get better performance, especially if, if you're working in a sport dog sense or you're competing with your dogs, you know, arousal is actually a very good thing for our training. And it's, you know, a normal aspect, again, of dog behavior, and it shouldn't be thrown out or like considered like a dirty thing <laughs> in the uh, in the dog training community. So, but I'm sure some of the listeners have the question of what do you do with dogs that have a difficult time controlling arousal? So they spill over into that old Yerkes-Dodson curve where it gets over into a problematic area where their performance is diminished. And let's go a step further. Let's say we've got a dog that becomes highly aroused and they get to a diminished standpoint. So they, their level of arousal is getting to the point where they're cognitive abilities aren't functioning as well as, as at a premium state of arousal. And then we have them spotting a squirrel or something like that when they're in an extremely high state of arousal. So what are your strategies there when you're experiencing that with your clients? Yeah, um, I see your point. And I have to say, if I have dogs that are so extremely aroused that they can't think anymore, even in an, a quite normal situation where you think, oh, this is this is odd, then I would recommend a full vet check first. So I would have them to go to the vet because I think there might be some underlying issues with thyroid, with pain, chronic pain, even some stomach problems sometimes. And then if this is all ruled out, then I normally teach them oh, yeah, calmness around wildlife. And uh, this means that the dog learns to control themselves in the presence of wildlife. And here, this is something where we humans often fail because we think that the dogs or the aim is to get the dog closer and closer to a wild animal and they still are calm. But in the beginning, we might start from, well, 200 meter with one cow in the field who isn't moving at all, just eating their grass. And if the dog is successful there, then we can gradually get a little closer. But the aim is not to get as close as much to the wild animal as possible. The aim is calmness. And the dog should always be able to stand on their own without us holding the leash back and, um, the dog should be approachable. We can ask them, can you perform a sit or can you perform a hand touch? And if the dog is able to do that, then we are in a thinking state. And uh, if not, we need to increase more distance. So distance is key in this training, distance um, to achieve calmness. So it sounds very similar to the foundational aspects we work with many of our, you know, reg, you know, I shouldn't say regular aggression cases, but aggression cases in general, where distance is a very important aspect. Foundational behaviors and skills taught ahead of time are very important. So what do you tell clients for when that isn't controllable as much? Let's say we are, you know, because we're dealing with critters or maybe things that we can't necessarily ask, you know, the squirrel to stay still <laughs> or the, the cat, you know, hey, you mind pausing there for a second because we're working with distance here. What do you do or how do the setups look like? How do you control that distance, especially for clients that live in an area where it's it's just packed full of critters and animals and things? Yes, this is one 
basic or most severe problems when you work with predation because to some extent you have to work in the situation. This is something that you try to avoid in dog training as much as you can. You want to prepare the dog for the situation, but uh, here in predation, we often work in the situation and sometimes it just goes wrong. Sometimes the dog goes over threshold. This is so important that we have a leash on the dog to make sure nothing bad happens. But you have to distinguish between, can my dog, is he able to stand and be calm in the presence of this wild animal? Or is it simply impossible? For example, when you walk down the street and then five meters in front of you, a squirrel goes up a tree or a cat runs across the street, your dog has no chance to stand and stalk. This is where, yeah, some dogs can do it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, but not the majority of dogs can't. And this is the moment when you need an interrupter. You need a let's get out of this place cue for your dog, an emergency exit. And I normally use um, a U-turn here because it increases distance and you can teach the dog at the sight of um, a cat or of a sudden movement to turn around and run into the opposite direction with you. So very solid recall, it sounds like, or sh very short recall, but a very solid fluent behavior of when they see something. Because another question I'm sure you get all the time is, what do I do when my dog is already pulling towards that squirrel or that cat? And they're, cha they're in chase, but the leash is stopping them. And they're not responding to my voice. And they're not, I'm saying their name, I'm screaming, and they're not listening. So what do you tell, what do you do there? Just kind of damage control at that point? Exactly. Yes. To be honest, just some damage control. I like um, or I love um, some techniques uh, from Krisha Stewart's bat training that you, for example, you tap on your dog's backhand and ask them, can you come with me? And uh, But sometimes if this all goes wrong, just grab the harness, lead them out of the situation. Let's get out of here. So... The next thing, you know, you kind of touched about the stalking game, and I, it made me think about also sniffing. And so, you know, to clarify the differences, you know, stalking is almost like pointing towards you. The dog's already moved yeah. past the alert stage. But where sniffing and kind of tracking that animal, I should say, is where we might say, okay, you saw a deer, you know a deer was here somewhere, and you're sniffing for it. Is that something similar you can incorporate where we're satisfying some of that need, but um, where also it's not necessarily an undesirable behavior for us as humans, where we're just following our dog as they sniff towards that particular animal. Is that something you would suggest or incorporate? Yes, of course. You can incorporate it as a, a tool when you come across the traces of uh, wildlife. You can, um, for example, your dog gets really um, excited and shows you. They start, when, when, when you do this kind of training, the dog doesn't need to hide it from you anymore and just chase off. They start to cooperate with you. They start to to tell you, oh my God, look, there was something exciting. And they start to look at you because and they know that you are going to do it together with them. And then you have time to put a leash on your dog. And then, for example, you go into the woods with your dog for about two or three meters. And uh, you can sniff out the, the tracks of this animal together with your dog. And at some point, for example, after three meters, you say, okay, let's stop here. Let's do something else together. And then um, you can always uh, come back with a game that caters the same need. For example, you have a little Little, uh, these toys that you can stuff with treats, for example, prey dummies or treat balls, and you 
hide them or you, you know not hide you um, lose them on your on your way you pretend to lose them of course you put them down secretly and then you go on with your dog and then after a couple of meters you send them back and you say oh my god i have lost something and then they can trail or trace back your steps to get this little toy and they bring it to you and then you open the zipper together with them they can stick their noses in there they can eat out of the spray dummy and they connect all this positive feeling that they have with tracing animals with tracking them they connect it with you because you were hunting it down together and you are the one who opens the zipper for them and gives them access to the to the good part <laughs> that's brilliant brilliant and so it's just to picture in my mind what that looks like do you also incorporate so it sounds like you're kind of incorporating a pre-mac principle where we want the dog to let us know or alert hey i smell something i'd like to go track it for a moment yes do you kind of train that ahead of time where we start seeing that in our dog we ask for a recall you know hey fido come check in with me and then we're gonna go sniff uh, is yeah. this typically what you would do just so they don't start going? I can imagine some of our hound listeners that have hounds or knows, really nose-oriented dogs that are constantly pulling and going off into the woods and like never ever checking in with the owner. So do you typically add that in before you just let the dog start saying, oh, I smell something, just see you later? <laughs> yeah, to be honest, I don't really train that to some extent. It just happens at some point when you start to show interest in what the dog does. So if, for example, you find something on your way, for example, some shed wolf or hair from animal animals and your dog hasn't seen that before, they just overran it and then you can call them back and you can say, wow, look what I found here. And sometimes the dog says, no, nah, this is nothing. Let's go on. <laughs> but then again, sometimes they say, well, this is interesting. Uh, apparently she's not as dumb as I thought. She found something interesting. And then uh, after some time, they start to share it with you as well. So you, you have to be alert on your walks. You have to look out for things that you can reward your dog with. As you mentioned, um, pre-mac principle, for example, when your dog wants to, for example, you come across these little paths in the woods where the deer run from one side to the other, where they cross. You can see that. Even as a human, you can see that there are little paths in the woods. And uh, when you spot them, you can ask your dog, oh, come on, let's check this out. As I said before, at some point, the dog will show them to you as well, because now they realize, oh, she's interested in that as well. So it's really cool. It's uh, listening to all the things you're saying. It's such a great distinction between what you were saying when we first started the show, as far as it being completely unfair to clients saying you need to be the dog center of the universe. You know, they need to completely ignore everything else in the world and just focus on you. And you got to do that through training or some other relationship building skill, you know, which is it's a, it's an important concept as like, yes, we want to have be able to get our dog's attention when necessary, but it's completely unfair to say to the dog, you know, hey, don't check anything else out in the world. Just I'm the only thing here when you've got all these amazing scents and critters and sounds and everything else in the world. So we're cooperatively working towards exploring those things together. We just look for installing additional behaviors in the dog that are appropriate to us as humans, right? Yes. And so give us some more ideas on the other games, because this is a question I get commonly, you know, so people are like, oh yeah, I know how to use a flirt pole or maybe fetch or treat scatters, but then they run out of ideas or like, oh, well, I, I don't know much beyond that or what else can we do? You know, so, and, and I love like the, the toy dropping 
game that you were just talking about, you know, stuff a toy with some food, drop it, let the go dog go find it, big surprise, and you work on it together. Love that. And so what, what other strategies do you have that are similar to that or even completely off the wall? <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the most simple game that is highly effective and that I recommend for any dog is uh, to do a treat tree or a sausage tree so that you basically you take some treats for example sausages and you spike little twigs with these sausages or you scatter it in fallen leaves or just you just take a handful of kibble and throw it into the grass and then your dog can scavenge because we know that um, feral dogs in the world they they hardly do any hunting. <laughs> they go scavenge for food. And uh, this is how they structure their day by scavenging, sleeping, and then doing some social stuff. So this gives our dog so much purpose in life to scavenge for, for things, for food on the ground. Or you can put some liver pate in the bark of a tree. You can just squeeze it in there and then the dog can lick it out there. It's just like a food, um, um, these, these little bowls that licky mats or something, but it's just a tree. For example, you can, you can use a tree as a licky mat basically. And, um, it calms the dogs down because it's, um, scavenging or chewing and um, eating is the last part of the predatory sequence where we have these calm hormones released into the body. So um, this is a very calm activity that gives the dog so much enjoyment and the dogs love it so much. And I recommend it for any dog. So um, whenever I have a, a session with my clients, we end with a treat tree. And I think an additional point to make is the the concept of contra-free loading, where animals are going to prefer to actually work for their food rather than if you just give it to them freely, uh, that activity of working for them has many more benefits and it's more, it's often more likely to happen, interestingly enough. And it's sometimes people are like, oh, you know, if I had the choice of grabbing a bundle of hundred dollar bills in front of me or money in front of me versus maybe working for it, sometimes that concept is hard to understand, but a lot of animals will actually engage in those activities like scavenging to get to that particular item. So yeah, some interesting things. So scavenging, toys, um, do you ever incorporate more arousing activities in certain contexts? So like you mentioned, when we're talking about the islands of calmness <laughs> and bringing in other activities that are arousing, do you avoid those towards the end because of what you're talking about? We want to kind of bring the dog down. Or do you sometimes with some dogs still engage in activities that might be more highly arousing, like a flirt pole or chasing the owner or something like that? Yes, exactly. I do this when I train a recall, for sure. There needs to be arousal. We cannot train recall without arousal because we need that recall to function when the dog is highly aroused. And if we only ever train it in a very calm environment, then it will not happen when we need it in a highly exciting state of the dog. So I always compare it to when you learn how to drive, then your driving instructor first takes you on a very calm industrial area, shows you where is the gear and where is the brake and all the stuff. And then he gradually takes you all the way up to the Autobahn. In Germany, we are allowed to go as fast as we can or as we want on the Autobahn. Um, so we need to build that too, because the Autobahn, the highway, this is the emergency when we need the recall, when the deer is running in front of our dog. And uh, in order to work in this situation, we need to mimic this arousal on the way up 
to the real life situation. So yeah, in recall training, you definitely need arousal and you need all the stuff that you can get. You need the fake rabbit on a, on a rubber band that squishes along the way, or you need flirt poles, you need balls. Yes, you need all the stuff that you can get here to create this arousal. And so when you say those things like the rabbit on a rubber band or these other things, as the reinforcer or as sort of a distraction in which we're going to use around the dog to, in a a sense, you're getting that higher state of arousal, but also to see if the dog's going to respond to your recall cue when that particular stimulus is also in the environment, or do you use it more as a reinforcer, the things you were describing? Both, both. I use it as a distraction and I use it as... um, as a reinforcer, if it is safe to do, you can send your dog back. And this is the best um, reinforcer that you can get. Yeah, if you can send your dog back to have it. So whenever it is safe to do, you can send your dog back. But still, I wouldn't do that all the time because then your dog thinks that he is allowed to run back all the time. And you don't want to have that as well because in a, mm-hmm. an emergency situation where it's a real life um, situation, you cannot always send your dog back to chase the deer or whatever, then mm-hmm. your dog um, needs to stay with you as well. But sometimes you can do it, yeah. So some of the listeners are probably thinking about their own dogs or maybe cases they've experienced where it's very difficult or extreme case where the dog is just not responding to anything. So they've tried a bunch of different things. They're, you know, maybe getting some success, but most of the time they're they're having a really difficult time controlling their dog or the dog is just still heavily predating on all the critters in the world. And so maybe you have a specific case or a story you can you can kind of think back to a real difficult case where a creative solution kind of solve that issue. This is for the listeners that do have those type of dogs, yeah, because it's it's a tricky one. Let's face it; it's not the yeah, it's not yeah. a, it's not not teaching a dog how to sit in a yes, kitchen. Yes, exactly. <laughs> well, I have to admit, um, this is not a magic pill that you can give your dog and then it never happens again. Um, so it always depends on the dog. It always depends on the dog owner how far they can get, and it's not the case that. Every dog will be off leash after this training or when they do this training. There are dogs that need to stay on leash for the rest of their lives. It happens. And the prognosis is not always good. As I said before, if the dog has already a very strong reinforcement history of chasing and doing whatever they want, you you can, of course, improve the situation. But it's not given that you can get 100%. And um, I sometimes tell people that, well, okay, even even though we work towards off-leash time, it doesn't have to be all the time. So you don't have to think um, 100%. Think about 2%. 2% is better than nothing. So maybe when you walk, uh, when you're out on your walks and you come across a place where you know, okay, this is quite boring. This is quite a boring place for my dog. Nothing ever happens here. Then you can just drop your long line for about two minutes. And then sometimes people feel uneasy and then I say, okay, now you can take it on again and hold it in your hand again. But uh, try to work on that gradually and don't put that pressure on yourself and on your dog that they have to succeed and be yeah, the best dog in the world, never going off to chase. Um, yeah. And so one other question I had as you were talking about that in some of the cases is environmental cues and some of the aspects you've been talking about how that can be incorporated. But let's say we want the goal of you see a deer, come check in with me. 
whether I'm recognizing that there's a deer there or not. And um, it's something I've worked on with my own dog, Castanya, who used to be very interested in bikers. But anytime now she sees a bike, uh, somebody on a bike, she'll come check in with us as the owners. And sometimes we don't see the bike, but she'll come check in with us. And then a 30 seconds later, we'll see a bike going by. And so that's the environmental cue to come check in. Do you find that as a successful strategy for dogs that have uh, a history of predation? Yes, definitely. This is um, why you teach them um, to indicate on, on wildlife, to stand and stalk, to get your foot into the door. So instead of chasing off immediately without a second look, you teach them to stand and stalk, and then you have time to put on your leash. And uh, this is an environmental cue that um, you, I, I rather not teach them to check in with me, but to indicate the wild animal, because then they can stay within the predatory sequence. They can stalk with their eyes, and they don't have to leave all these feel-good hormones behind and check in with you into your human world. So most dogs find it easier to stand and stalk the animal than turning around and checking in with you. Very, very good distinction there. And, you know, it plays into the whole, you know, again, understanding the dog's needs and not necessarily always having to squash that, right, or or punish it, you know. And, uh uh, yeah, it all, it all just ties together well, you know, so just to recap here, you know, what you were talking about, there's some steps to this, and I want to recap it, recap it for the listeners, but management, it always starts with management, right? And then we get into creating those islands of calmness, right? With also bringing in games where arousal, where we can only be able to use that in our training for things like recalls. And then you add in the games, which helps to satisfy that innate need without creating frustration or displacement behaviors or more predation because the dog's just trying harder <laughs> to accomplish and satisfy those goals. And then we also have to have appropriate interrupter cues that we practice ahead of time. Does that kind of summarize the process? Yes, the, and you the, need the, the super short summary, I'm sure. But exactly, uh, so the four yeah. aspects: the management, yeah. then the tools in the situation, the games for the situation, and then the interrupter. Exactly. Excellent, yeah. excellent. So I've definitely learned a lot during this episode. Where can others learn more about this in the work you're doing? Yeah, I have a website, uh, of course, and Facebook, Instagram, <laughs> YouTube. <laughs> These are the, the regular channels where you can uh, learn more about my work and what I do. And yeah, I'm always, always looking forward to people sending me videos or photos with their dogs hunting together with them. Always on leash, of course. I, <laughs> yeah, I want to make sure that everybody's <laughs> safe here. Yeah. And yeah, on my website, I, um, yeah, I have a little um, freebie for your listeners prepared. It's a, an anti-predation game that I think is very, very valuable because it teaches so many things. It teaches um, impulse control. It teaches calmness. It teaches um, or it gives an outlet for so many things for chasing, for sniffing, for yeah, all the, the, the fun parts that the dog wants to perform. And uh, yeah, you can just have a look there. It's called the 10 treats game because you basically work with 10 treats in this game. And uh, yeah, it teaches your dog so many things. It's, uh, I think, the most comprehensive anti-predation game that I know. 
<laughs> Wonderful. I, I appreciate that opportunity and a little uh, shout out to the listeners of the Bitey End of the Dog and a little freebie there. So appreciate that. They can find that on uh, predationsubstitutetraining.com. The, exactly. And then slash giveaway. Yeah. Slash giveaway. Excellent. And I'll be sure to link that in the show notes for everybody. Simone, thank you so much. This was wonderful. I'm looking forward to seeing you at the Aggression and Dogs Conference happening September 30th to October 2nd. Uh, you'll be there in person talking about predation substitution in more detail. And I'm sure the attendees are going to love that. That is available online and in person in Providence, Rhode Island this year. So yeah. thank you so much for joining me. Thank you very, very much for having me. I'm already so excited and I hope that COVID will let us travel. <laughs> I hope so, too. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> All right, thank you, Simone. It was so great to learn about working with predatory behavior with the amazing Simone, who will be speaking at the Aggression and Dogs conference this year. If you like the show, please don't forget to subscribe, share, and give a rating. And hop on over to AggressiveDog.com for more information about helping dogs with aggression. From the Aggression and Dogs Master Course to webinars from world-renowned experts, and even an annual conference, we have options for both pet pros and pet owners to learn more about aggression, aggression in dogs, in dogs, in dogs, in dogs, in dogs. Thanks for joining me for the Bitey End of the Dog. If you like the show, please feel free to subscribe, share, and give a rating. And hop on over to AggressiveDog.com or TheLooseLeashAcademy.com for more information about webinars, courses, and conferences, all dedicated to helping dogs with aggression issues. And don't forget, the Aggression in Dogs conference will be happening from October 22nd to 24th with 12 amazing speakers, all streaming from a television studio in Chicago. It's going to be a truly unique event in 2021.